0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. What's up, everyone? Hey, guys. My name is Stevie. I am uh, a pastor at Light Church. Um, I more located in the Encinitas location, but we're one big family. And so this morning, uh, we got to borrow Caitlin up in Encinitas, and I got to come down. And so I'm excited to be able to teach and open up the text today. We're in the same series. We've been doing this um, together in the Lent series. We've been walking through this idea of the garden. And this idea of the garden, we're currently in this idea of tilling the soil. Is this okay, or is you guys? Okay, we're good. Um, this idea of tilling the soil. And so that's what I'm we'll gonna be diving into today, continuing on our series of tilling the soil as we build up all the way until Easter. And so Lent is this time where we look at our lives. We look at maybe the rocks, we look at maybe the, the, the thorns and the roots and the things in the soil of our life that are keeping us from being able to receive the seed that's gonna come, which is Jesus. And I think, I don't know about you guys, but um At this point in my life, I kind of started realizing, you start doing some of the deep work and you start thinking about your life in general. And you start thinking about, man, what are the narratives? What are the stories that I'm living by that are shaping my reality? Anybody else like thinking about that? You're like, you find yourself in a job and you're like, how did I get here? Right? Like, like what, what was it in my childhood? Some of those things that, like, good or bad, you know, those experiences that I had that took me to where I am today. Um, so many people ask me, like, how did you become a pastor? I'm like, well, and I got to go all the way back, and I start kind of processing through. I remember when I was in middle school, and I kind of had this one experience. I jumped in. I was on, like, this counseling club, and I started helping people out with their problems in middle school, and that led me on my trajectory today. And then there's some other negative experiences that kind of shaped and formed me. And so the reality is, and the the question I really want to leave you with and ask you is what stories and experiences and narratives are giving shape and form to your current attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors? What are those current narratives that are giving shape to your attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors? What are those stories that are repeated, right? The ones that that when it happened, you kind of claim, man, of course this happened to me. Like, of course that would happen to me, or, or why do I always, and you could fill in the blank, why do I always date bad guys? Anybody else? Not me, I don't date bad guys. Um, but maybe, you know, that's the story. Or why do you always find yourself in toxic relationships and friendships, or why do you always find yourself going back to those patterns of sin? My mother-in-law was just in town. I just dropped her off at the airport this morning. So 6.30 this morning, I just like drove down, dropped her off, and then I like hung out here for a little bit. But every time I hang out with my mother-in-law, I realize how different we are. You know, you like any in-laws, and you're like, yeah, this is, uh, we were raised different. We think differently. Think f- your, your daughter's awesome, but she's not here. It's so like I said, so, right? You, you always experience, you're like, man, we were just raised differently and even when i hang out with my mom i realize like my experiences and my remembering those of those experiences differ from hers like i'm like how did you get that mom you left me at disneyland not the other way around right like I, so we have these experiences now not sure which variation of the story is actually true but what i do know is that that recollection or those recollections the narratives that have shaped me throughout my life inform my decisions they informed my mind they inform how i live my life because the narratives we live by matter the narratives you've been shaped by throughout your life matter the family you were born in the city you grew up in whatever happened to you as a kid or or even last week those things shape you because our brains are layer upon layer story after story that either affirm or confirm the previous story and as they build up they create a worldview a view in which you now see the world, to give you lenses so that you can actually operate and move throughout the world. We are all storied creatures. Why does this matter? I think this matters because we're talking about tilling the soil during Lent. And Paul in Romans 12 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, which is this idea of metamorphosis. Metamorpho is the Greek word. Be transformed, be changed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Now the way that we have the soil tilled and churned and ready and fertile in our life to be transformed is by learning to live into an alternative narrative. We all live by these narratives. We are all um, enslaved to these narratives, but then the way that we can actually be transformed to live in the way of Jesus is by taking on and adopting a new narrative. Now, when I was in college, anyone else in college in here? I know like most of you guys are up at Camp Love, but right, when I was in college, I didn't have any money, right? I was poor and I realized that I had just a mound of student loan debt growing and compounding interest and I was like, shoot, I have to do some dirty work in order to like make money and so I had to do some dirty work. I started landscaping. And so I started doing landscaping. I remember that as I was landscaping, there was some soil that was actually just dead soil. If you guys have ever had to work with soil before, and the dead soil was just sucked dry of all its nutrients. It was untended to. It was useless. And so what we had to do in order to make it ready to be fertilized and in order for it to be useful, we had to throw a fertilizer on there, a combination of manure. We even had to put chemicals on there at times to restore the soil so that it can get to the right pH levels so that nutrients are ready for the planting. And I think what I realized from that is what we needed was an outside source to enter in to begin to change and transform the soil so it could be fertile. And like that soil, we have become rocky, we have become weedy, we have become soil that is dead soil. We've been overused, we've been abused, we've been not nourished, we've been not well watered, we've been pulled dry of its value. We've been living into narratives that we have believed over and over again that told us that we're not worthy, that we're not enough, we've been used and abused and we've been brought to be dead soil. And so maybe just like the soil that needs extra nourishment, extra fertilizer, maybe even some chemicals, we need an outside source to come and bring us back to life. This is actually what the Bible does. So if you've ever been wondering, like, like, why do I read the Bible? Why do I keep reading this? Because this is the new narrative that we can now shape and transform our life by. The Bible is actually meditation literature, which means that you read it and you reread it and you reread it again. And as you do, as you go through and you go back through, you start to make connections. You start to see repeated themes. You start to see how this narrative is actually the truest reality that shapes and transforms our life. And so the narrative pattern that we're going to look at today to shape our lives by is how God takes us through the water of slavery and sin and death and out into worship, out into new life. So let's just start at the beginning, right where the Bible starts off, right? So if you guys are familiar with the Bible, the Bible starts off with God creating, and He created the heavens and the earth, and it says that the earth was formless and empty. The word in Hebrew is tohu vavohu, which literally means wild and waste. And so it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the chaotic wild and waste waters, the spirit of God was just hovering. So this is the scene. You have the spirit just hovering over chaos waters. And so everything from here on out, whenever you see water throughout the Bible, it's going to represent uncreation. It's gonna represent things without order or design or beauty. It's the image of death. And so, when you see waters throughout the Bible, you're typically seeing the image of death alluding back to this moment right here where the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos waters. And then what happens is God speaks. He speaks over the chaos waters. He's taming the chaos waters and he brings a life into death. He brings order into chaos. This is what God does. And so, the act of creating is chaos taming. And he he brings form and he fills the formless and the empty. And it says this because he, he's creating and he's, he's chaos taming and it makes its culmination in the creation of humans, Genesis one twenty six. This is what we were created to be. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule. You rule. I feel like we used to say that all the time as kids and we we're like, we didn't realize we were saying something very deeply, profoundly biblical, like you rule. And rule in the Hebrew is the word rada, rada, And that Hebrew word, one scholar uh, defines it as to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. So when you were created to rule, you ruling is you were created to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. It can also be translated rule or reign or have dominion. This is royalty language. And so in the ancient Near East, the idea of an image of God was only given to, like, the Pharaoh. It was only given to the kings. They were the only ones that were able to hold the status of image of God. But then held up against that, the narrative of the Bible says you are all the image of God. Not just royalty, not just men, but women, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. Everybody is the image of God. Because if only the king is the image of God, guess who isn't? You. And if you're not the image of God and he is, then you are forced to be subhuman. You can be forced into slave labor and to do whatever Pharaoh and his rich friends bidding wants. And so the Bible then makes this declaration, no, Pharaoh isn't the image of God alone. We are all the image of God. You rule to bring God's kingdom forward. And then it continues to Genesis two, verse seven. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. Now jump down to actually verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So just before this scene that I just read, um, God's kind of giving this imagery of what the garden is. And he starts talking about how there's like, there's trees and there's water and there's gold and there's like aromatic resin. And he's talking about all these different materials that are in the garden of Eden. And then he says, he puts humans in the garden to work it and take care of it. So humans, we are called to rule, but we're also called to work it. I you know in your head, you're like, work it. you know, you're like thinking, you're called to work it. In Hebrew, that word work it is the word abad, abad. It can can actually be translated to cultivate, develop, or draw out its potential. It is gardening language. We were created to rule and we were created to work it. Tim Keller defines work based off of this biblical theology. Work itself is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. And this is true of all sorts of work. This is a farmer taking soil and seed and rearranging it into, so that crop and food can grow for people to eat and enjoy. And then it's also the one who works at the restaurant who takes that crop and takes the food and rearranges it to be delicious food. Or it's the person who's an entrepreneur and they take an idea, they take a creative thought and they turn it into a business moving forward. Or it's a craftsperson who takes a lump of metal or it's a parent who takes a kid and breathes potential into that kid. This is the work of cultivation and gardening. In Colossians, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is just an aside, because this is gonna make sense as we move forward into the story of Moses, but just as an aside, when you guys work, I know that work can feel like a burden, But we are called to work, not for a human boss, but to work really hard as if God is our boss. And as we work it, we are worshiping. We are created to work, to redeem the work that we do. Dorothy Sayers says this about work. She says that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and then to come to church on Sundays. But what the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. So whatever you do, our religion, Christianity, God looks at you and he says, whatever you do, do it as if God is your boss, do it well. And that is worship. Um, there's this, there's this Hebrew idea called Kavana, and that's the idea of doing everything with holy intent. The idea is that when, um, when the fall happened, when sin broke into the world, it just broke God's glory into millions of pieces. And so they had this idea of Kavana, of when you work, when you do it with holy intent, you are reweaving glory. And so there's this, um, this uh, Jewish rabbi tells the story of like a cobbler who's, as he's tying the top of a shoe down to the bottom of the sole, he says, I'm reweaving glory. And you thought you were just checking emails. You thought you were just doing Excel sheets. You are reweaving glory. And so this, the reason why I say all of that is because this is the truest narrative about us. We live by all these alternative narratives. We live by all these other thoughts that say we're not good enough, we have to earn it, we have to do this in order to be worthy. And the truest narrative about us is that we were created to rule as image bearers of God and we were called to work it, to cultivate, to garden, to weave glory into all things. We were called to worship. And now with that, we're ready to pick up in Exodus. Exodus 1, verse 8. If you were here last week, we talked about the story of Joseph. Um, Joseph, he brought his family into Egypt and they grew greatly in number and they were really loved by the previous Pharaoh. But in verse eight, it says, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Go down to verse 22. It says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must thrown into the Nile but every girl let live." What did I say about water in the very beginning? Every time you're seeing water, you're seeing this image of death. And so as Pharaoh then says, throw them in the now, throw them in the water, throw them in chaos and decreation and death. And so you have this, this scenario that's beginning to work out because I just said that we were created to rule and to work it, but where, where does Israel find themselves? Are they ruling and are they working it? They're being ruled. And they're being worked. They're being ruled as far less than the status of image of God by a man who says he alone is the image of God. And they're being worked not to weave glory and cultivate a good and beautiful and just garden with God. They're being worked to bend their backs to build a kingdom of violence and injustice and inequality and hatred and evil. Do you see what the narrative is doing here? It's highlighting a story, not of creation, but of decreation. We were created to work in this one direction, and we're seeing a narrative talk about a whole different direction a story of decreation and a story of chaos. And in this moment of decreation, in this story of chaos, Moses is born. Now Moses is a famous figure throughout the Bible, and through a series of astonishing events, Moses um, is brought up and he, he's saved from the Nile rivers, he's, he's brought into Pharaoh's household, and then he grows up, he kills an Egyptian taskmaster, he flees to Midian where he meets his wife, but ultimately God reveals himself to Moses through the famous story of the burning bush. So if you're familiar with church, but even if you're not familiar with church, many people know the story of the burning bush. It's like great and veggie tales, if you guys even know what that is. Um, but during that encounter with God, uh, Moses was commissioned to deliver the Israelite nation from Egypt oppression. And with the help of his brother Aaron, Moses confronts Pharaoh and he pleads for the Israelites' release. But this is what this is what his plea was in, in Exodus 7:16. Tell him, this is God saying this, tell him. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, that's the Israelite nation, has sent me to tell you, let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. Now that word worship, I think you can see it right there. That word worship is the same word for work it. So when we were created and we were created to rule and we were created to work it, to cultivate, to bring beauty and goodness, Right here, what God is calling Moses to do is to tell Pharaoh, let my people go so they can go back to what they were created to do, which is to abide, to work it. What this means is to worship is to work it. To worship is to work it, meaning what God was calling Israel out of slavery for, what he was about to do was to take them from oppression and into freedom. From oppression to an evil taskmaster, ultimately for the purpose of restoring our truest narrative as co-rulers, image bearers, and partners with God in this garden project. He's calling us into freedom, not just simply that we can be free from slavery, but we can be free into what we were created to do in the first place, which is to work it, to worship. We are set free to garden again. We are set free to weave glory into all of creation again. We are set free to bring goodness and beauty and justice and mercy and peace and love into the world. Or in the language of Jesus, we are set free to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth or in San Diego as it is in heaven. This is what we're set free to do. And so then the story continues. God hits Egypt with a series of plagues. God is moving things forward because he is trying to set his people free. Pharaoh eventually relents and he lets God's people go. But the question that we're now left with is how? How is God going to deal with this decreation narrative? How is God going to lead his people free from slavery And free to worship and garden once again. We know that God wants to, but how is he going to do it? He's going to move the Israelites through the waters and into worship. And so through the story, their escape from Egypt, God leads Moses and the Israelites out of slavery and is famously by a pillar of smoke during the day, a pillar of fire at night. He moves them forward. And at some point, Pharaoh realizes, gosh, I just lost all my slave labor. Who's going to, like, massage my back and feed me grapes? Like, who's going to build my storehouses? Who's going to do all these things for me? I just let all my slaves go. And so he, he changes his mind, and he starts to chase the Israelites down. God knew this was going to happen. And so now God brings them up with their back against the Red Sea, and it says that 600 chariots were pursuing them. Now, that's the ancient equivalent of tanks. And so you have 600 tanks, Pharaoh and this like crazy army coming at the Israelites. Their back is up against the Red Sea. Now remember, literally, they're at a dead end because water is representative of death. And so they're literally at a dead end. Their back is up against the Red Sea. Meanwhile, they have Egyptian tanks that are pursuing them. And you find this in Exodus 14. This is what Moses tells the people as they're looking at two impossible scenarios. Moses answered the people, "Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord. The the the, the, the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still." The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind. All that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. The story continues. The Egyptians pursued the Israelites into the waters. God bring the waters down over the Egyptians. They end up dying. The enslaved nation of Israel is now set free, purchased by God, because he parted the chaotic waters. And it's as God said it would be, they're set free to worship in the wilderness because this is what happens right after this. In Exodus 15, 1, they begin to break out in a song of praise. They say, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. What I want to highlight from this story and the theme, the narrative that we're going to see repeated over and over again is this, that there are parallels. What's interesting is God's activity in this story, the story of Exodus, runs parallel to his story in in the creation account. In the beginning, God's spirit, or his ruach, hovered over the watery chaos and decreation and death. In the Exodus story, God parts the waters by a strong east wind. The word is ruach. And he separated out into land and sea, exactly what he did in the Genesis account. He gave Eden as a covenant land, and he gave that to humanity so that we can inhabit the fullness of God's promises and worship him. And in Exodus, the people of God are once again set free to inhabit the fullness of God's promises and worship him. Do you guys see, Scripture is intentionally establishing a pattern of salvation for us, and it's beautiful. This is the new narrative that we live by. God is creating a pattern of salvation for us. So just put this in your back pocket because we're gonna talk about it again. But if this salvific character of God is meant to be the narrative that we pattern our lives around and put our trust in, the other pattern scripture is making really clear is just how stubborn the soil of our own hearts are. I mean, if you read the Old Testament and you read it again, you realize how annoying it is. Because not only is it just like hard to read, but sometimes you read it and you're like, these guys are just dumb. Like, why do they keep doing that over and over again? Literally, God just brought them out of Egypt, and now they're like questioning if God's going to like protect them. And so you read this, you're like, man, they're so stubborn. Just how easy do they forget? But just how easily do we go right back to that one thing that begins the cycle of reinforcing the false narratives that we live by? We forget. And we dip right back into that sin. We fail to trust God. And at the foot of the Red Sea, which is sure death, they can't swim across that, and facing 600 Egyptian tanks, which is also sure death, this is what they say. Exodus 16. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted you read that, you're supposed to laugh, like, because it's just like, are you kidding me? You were enslaved, and you're like, oh man, but the the meat pots were so good. (laughs) The bread, you know, Isola Bakery bread, it was so good in Egypt, right? How easy is it for us that even though we have freedom, when times get tough, when things get scary, when times get hard, do we dip right back into that habituated pattern? Do we dip right back into those narratives that we used to believe about ourselves and we just start living them out again? We reach right back into that back pocket where our addiction is that we tried to kick or we go back to that toxic cycle of relationships and we're just malnourished and we dry out and we get abused and overused and the soil of our lives again becomes dead and enslaved. I think if we're all being brutally honest, we do this. We repeat, we repeat habituated patterns that we hate. We say things that we wish we would have never said. I think the only way that we can describe those patterns that if we're all honest, we all experience is slavery. We experience those things and we feel like we just can't break free from them. We find ourselves in moments of slavery and we look back and we're like, yeah, but the meat pots were so good. The bre- Remember the bread, it was just so good. Bishop T.D. Jakes says about this passage, he says, get that taste out of your mouth. So when he sets you free and he brings you out, he's saying, get that taste out of your mouth. You've been set free from that pattern of addiction. You've been set free from that habituated narrative. You've been set free, get that taste out of your mouth. You don't need to keep looking back and be like, ah, but the meat was so good. No, get that out of your mouth. Move forward. God wants to set you free. And yet we find ourselves just like Israel, reaching back into the patterns and the addictions and saying, but it was still good. And we only do that when we're in a place of fear. When we find ourselves in a place of brokenness and difficulty and we're like, ah, it's really hard right now. That, that meat was pretty good. Get that taste out of your mouth. See, if you notice, they're facing death towards the Red Sea, and they're facing death towards the 600 chariots, and they only have one choice, death. Look, there's a cost of discipleship, of following Jesus through the waters. There's a cost of following God into—it's described in the New Testament as dying to yourself so you can become alive in Christ. The New Testament is just stealing this image. There's a cost of discipleship. It will cost you your life. But it moves you into a place of res- restoration and freedom and purpose. But notice there's also a cost to non-discipleship. We can easily look back and say, but it was, it's easier over there. It's easier, maybe. You're still enslaved. You're still going to die. It's still a sure death. There's a cost of discipleship, there's a cost of following Jesus, but there's a cost of not. And so with Bishop T.D. Jakes, get that taste out of your mouth. Let's move forward into the freedom that God has for us. This epic salvation through the waters to worship God, to partner with Him in working it, creating and cultivating, it seems at this moment to be a huge failure. Because God brings them out miraculously through the Red Sea, out of Egypt. You feel like he'd be doing all of these things. And then you have Israel just grumbling and complaining and going back to their old patterns and their old ways. If you're familiar with the story, they just continually go back to their old ways. And so what we're left with, at the end of this this five-book segment, the book of Deuteronomy, at the very end of it, we're actually left with like a cliffhanger. Because at the very end of that book, we're we're thinking, man, how are we ever going to be saved? Because we find ourselves getting set free from God and then going right back to slavery. We find ourselves being set free, and then we grumble and complain and go back to the meat pots. We find ourselves saying, like, yes, God, you're awesome, and then we start turning and we worship idols, we worship something else, or we, we go back into those habituated patterns. And so at the end of Deuteronomy, you're like, how are we ever going to be saved and so the end of Deuteronomy shows us that we need a new Moses-like figure. We need a new person who can go through the waters on our behalf because we obviously suck at it. He needs to go through the water on our behalf and come out on the other end to be able to worship God the way that we are intended. Deuteronomy 34, is the very end of this segment about Moses. It says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew, knew face to face who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and all to his officials and to his whole land for no one has ever shown the mighty power to perform the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. So we're stuck. You read the end of Deuteronomy and you're like, yeah, what are we going to do? This narrative is intentionally leaving us with this cliffhanger of us being like, man, we need something. We need an outside source to come and revive the dead soil of our lives. Because left to our own devices, we're in broken cycles. Left to our own ways, we're going back to the meat pots. Left to our own ways, we are dead soil. We need someone like Moses. We need a better Moses. Enters Jesus. Turn with me to Mark 1. This is the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. We're just gonna read actually the baptism part. Verse nine, it says, "'In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee, "'and he was baptized in the Jordan River by John. "'As soon as he came up out of the water, "'he saw the heavens being torn open "'and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. "'And a voice came from heaven, "'You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased.'" Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Remember I said, put that in your back pocket, reach back into your back pocket. Jesus just goes through the waters. Jesus has the Spirit of God hovering over him, descending on him, just like he did in Genesis 1. And just like he did in the exodus out of Egypt, once again, God is tearing open the heavens and he's breaking into the human experience so that his people would be delivered out of slavery. So here are the connections. The the Spirit's descending and hovering over the chaotic waters. Just like the breath of God or the wind blew to separate the sea in the exodus account, God spoke over Jesus He breathed out words over Jesus just as he spoke over the chaotic waters to create creation. The heavens are torn open. It's the same language as the sea being torn open. The language is, this is my son whom I love. God calls Israel his beloved son. And then if you notice, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, which is paralleling to the 40 years of the wilderness wandering that Israel goes through. The parallels are unmistakable. The Bible's trying to give us a new narrative. The Bible is trying to have us understand there is a pattern that someone, someone, who we now know is Jesus, needs to pass through the waters, the waters of death and chaos, and come out the other end to bring life and restoration so that we can rule and that we can work it with him. This is creation and life out of decreation and death. This is what Jesus is doing. And we thought he was just getting baptized because he's a good Christian boy. He's retelling the story of creation. He's retelling the story of Israel, except he's fulfilling it. See, where Moses failed, Christ prevailed. Where creation went into disorder and chaos, he brings order and life. And this time, it isn't Moses saying to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. It is Jesus who's saying to the great oppressor, to Satan, sin, and death, let my people go so that they can worship me. Jesus comes as the greater Adam. He comes as the greater Moses to set us free so that we can worship him. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project explains that this is to overcome the chaos that was first unleashed in the garden, so that we can get to this this beautiful passage in revelation 21 that's pointing to the end of days and it says this a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth will pass away and the sea remember chaos decreation and death will be no more a holy city the new jerusalem will come down out of heaven from god prepared like a bride adorned for her husband and a loud voice From the throne, will say, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne says, Look, I am making everything new. See, Jesus' baptism is a promise. It's a foretaste of his ultimate death and resurrection, which brings the reality that I just read in Revelation, that we, in this picture, we are restored to the image of God. We get to rule with God again, and we are restored to work it with him. Tim Mackey also says, Christ is submerged under the waters of death and chaos, and then raised to life out of death and chaos and he says let my people go so they can worship me Jesus went through the waters of baptism but ultimately through actual death and came out the other end to set us free so that we can worship God I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up I think the question that we're left with is what does this mean for us what why does that matter That's kind of cool that there's connections in the Bible between Genesis and Exodus and Jesus. I think the connection is that Jesus says to his disciples and to you and me, come, follow me. Follow me. Follow me into the waters and out the other end into life and freedom. So when we follow Jesus, and baptism is the symbol of that. We had baptisms last week down here. We have baptisms this week. Baptism is the symbol of that, identifying with Jesus. But like I said, the New Testament is just co-opting language from Exodus where it says that if you die to yourself, right, when you're backed up against the Red Sea, and you only have the choice of death this way or death that way, what death are you going to choose? Death to self, which leads to life, or trying to grasp your own life, which ultimately leads to death? And the invitation is, will you die to yourself and receive the life that Christ has for you? Notice what Jesus did for us. He did for us what we continually fail to do. He actually completed the narrative. We, when we're set free, we go back into the cycles. Jesus didn't go back into a habituated cycle. He didn't go to sin. He didn't choose a pattern or a different narrative. He chose the right narrative to live by. He brings life and order and freedom to dead and disordered desires and and enslaved soil of our hearts. But notice that Jesus didn't just bring us freedom through the waters so that we're no longer enslaved. He gave us freedom so that we can move in a direction of worship. It's not just freedom from slavery. It's freedom to worship. I think sometimes we highlight that I'm, I'm set free from like sin true, but the reality is, is we're set free so that we can be stepping right back into our created order to rule, to bring beauty and goodness, to image God in the world around us, and we're set free to work it, to weave glory into everything that we do. That means that because of Jesus, we can go into our everyday ordinary lives with purpose. You can go into your nine to five or your four to seven if you work at Starbucks. You, you can go to your school and you can sit in your classroom. You can go to your family and you can raise your kid and you can do it differently because Jesus passed through the waters on your behalf. We can now be set free to worship, to weave glory into everything that we do to create good culture, to draw the potential out of everything around us, to garden and to create and bring beauty. Could you imagine if we were a church, if we were people set free, not from sin only, but set free to live as people who bring beauty and goodness and draw the potential of the raw world around us. Man, like San Diego would look different. San Diego would look more like the kingdom of God. And so he invites us to follow him. Romans six says this, since we have been united with Jesus in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, to Pharaoh, to those habituated patterns, when we died with Christ, when we passed through those waters with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. We are set free to worship. And so what we do is we we grab hold of Jesus. and we grab hold of him, we say, "What, what was true of you can be true of me. And so we say, Jesus, will you pass through those waters on my behalf? Will you give me your righteousness? And then we keep in step with the Spirit of God because the same spirit that held back the chaos and disorder in Genesis 1 is the same spirit that is holding back the chaos and disorder in your life. And so would you guys pray with me as we dive into some worship? Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and in the same way that you breathed over the chaotic waters, the disorder, the uncreation of Genesis and of Exodus and at Jesus' baptism, would you do that in our lives? Holy Spirit, would you hover over the chaos in our lives, the broken areas, the the patterns of habituated sin, the the addictions that we continually find ourselves in, the, the ways we go back to those meat pots and the bread. Would you hover over those areas of our lives and would you speak creation? Would you speak goodness? Would you push back the chaos and the disorder in our lives, Lord, and would you breathe life? Would you set us free, not just from sin, but set us free into worship? God, would you empower us and send us to live our lives differently as people who get to work it, who people who get to rule and reign with you in seeing your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's worship. Would you guys stand with me? Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.